What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode, the salary cap. What's it all about? I don't know. I thought you were going to tell me. I'm the columnist. I'm the analyst. And, and this, this is, is the, the Nick, Nick and Nolan, Nolan Show. to the Nick and Nolan Show, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast with your host, Nick Bat. Sometimes I'll start a sentence and I don't even know where it's going. I just hope I find it along the way. And Bruce Nolan. I once worked with a guy for three years and never learned his name. Best friend I ever had. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Nick and Nolan Show, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nick Bat. You can find me on Twitter at N-I-C-K-B-A-T. And along with me, as always, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter at Bruce Exclusive. This week, we are doing one of the things that is my favorite about what Bruce, about what Nick and Nolan do. Bruce and Bat. That was the alternative uh that was the alternative name way back. The alliteration is not nearly as it's solid. Not, no, Nick and Nolan is way better than Bruce and Bat. But what we are doing is one of our trademarked deep dives into a topic that is potentially just, I mean, most of the time the deep dives we've done, they have been about the Bills. But the Earhart Perkins uh, episode would be one that any football fan, any NFL fan might find some some interesting value in. And this is going to be our Salary Cap 101 episode. So we are getting into a part of the offseason where we are going to start talking about free agents. We're already talking about free agents. We just had the we, – we've had the Shaq Lawson, and Jordan Phillips, and now we're having the tight end conversations, right? And, and so much of what matters about – these conversations and how they these players affect the decisions the Bills need to make in the 2020 offseason is around the numbers. You know, the salary cap is a finite resource. There are only so many dollars to go around. And we have experienced, as fans, a team that was in quote-unquote cap hell, right? Where we couldn't even do some of the things that the team needed to do or wanted to do because of the financial obligations we had put ourselves in over the several years prior. Okay. Well, now this regime wants to get, they're going to get their crack at it, re-signing their own, bringing in free agents, all of that kind of stuff. There are still some firsts that are going to be crossed off the list for Brandon Bean and his front office and the the McBean regime. One of them being the process of re-signing your own, right? And this offseason, there's still holes to fill. There's still improvements to be made to the roster. This Greg Olson conversation is one that's of uh, significant interest. I've seen some Bills blogs talk about uh, free agent prospects like Emmanuel Sanders and Bud Dupree. And there's going to be 
you know, whole whole days dedicated to this on the Buffalo Rumblings website for some of these guys and some of the options that are out there at specific positions. We thought that it would be smart to take a step back and talk about the cap as it stands today. You know, the salary cap has changed. It changes with the collective bargaining agreement between the NFL Players Association, the, the Players Union, and the league and the owners. It, ex- it exists in a certain facet right now. And there's a whole lot of moving parts. Is that fair, Bruce? Yes. <laughs> You're the one who did most of the research and is going to be doing a lot of the educating on this. So I'm assuming there's a, there's a, a lot of bells and whistles. And we want to try to create at least a foundational level of understanding so that whenever people are talking about, oh, this guy's not worth the money or that's too much or this is a good deal or a bad deal, what a value. So all of that stuff can have some sort of comprehension in all of our brains for how it fits into the big picture. Do you want to add anything to what we're trying to accomplish today, Bruce, or how you think about what we're going to go over? I could do five or six pods on the salary cap, probably. We could do an individual pod on each one of the components of a contract if we really wanted to. So this is going to be a little rudimentary, I think, but I think it's valuable to have this discussion now so that some of the terms that get thrown around have some context behind them. And I think that's really the point of what we're doing here. This is not a salary cap 501 graduate level class. This is salary cap 101. All right. Awesome. So let's just jump right in. To start, give us a state of the union, I guess, of the of the current salary cap that the NFL teams are all working with. And what is the max? What is the limit? What are the parameters that sort of like everybody has to play on the same game board? Okay, so the NFL has a what's called a hard cap as opposed to other sports, which do not necessarily have that. Uh, baseball doesn't really have a salary cap at all. The NBA has a soft cap where if you go over the cap, you're charged a luxury tax. In basketball, in the NBA, that's the case. But in the NFL, there's a hard cap. You, you, you cannot spend more than this much money. You, you send the contract to the NFLPA for processing in the NFL, and the NFL will not process it. <laughs> I'm sorry. You don't have any money. You're out of money. And this was done initially to preserve competitive balance, which is something you don't see in the MLB basically at all. And you don't see it as much in the NBA, smaller market teams, it's a little bit like being division one college team versus being a non-power five college team. When you're a non-power five college team, you're not going to win a national championship. That's just not going to happen. You accept that you're not going to do that. And your definition of success is different than everybody else's. If you are a fan of Western Michigan, you're not going to win a college football national championship. You're not going to. That's just the way this works. And so if you're in the MLB, that's not to say it's never going to happen. It's kind of lightning in a bottle. It's it's a lightning in a bottle, right? Well, you and I live in a market where in Cleveland, we do not have the, the money that other people have. No. Now, we can still be a good team, and there's we've been to World Series, but it's very rare. And if you win one, that might be it for 50 years, for 60 years, for maybe 100 years. That's just the way it is. So in the it's NFL— sucks. It does kind of suck, but— the point for the NFL is to try and preserve competitive balance, to preserve it's, any given Sunday. It's kind of one of the reasons why I think a playoff drought of 17 years stings so much. Yeah. 
because in a in a in a different professional league, everybody isn't playing by at least financially. They're not playing by the same rules. Correct. And in the NFL, they are, and that's absolutely right. One of the things that makes this the drought more frustrating is because the league is basically set up for you. I mean, between compensatory draft picks and the salary cap and things like this, the, tra- the draft order in general, the draft order in general, the, the league is set up specifically to preserve competitive balance. And one of the ways they do that is by using a hard salary cap. And so there are rules that govern cap hit. So a salary cap is determined, right, by the revenue that's brought in by the league and the amount of that revenue that's then divided up across the teams. And then here's your salary cap. That's the way this works. So a cap hit is how much an individual contract counts toward the salary cap. So the salary cap is made up of a bunch of different cap hits. So if you're a team and you have a salary cap, whatever that salary cap number is, then whether or not you're over or below that number is based on the sum of all of your cap hits. Now, an individual player, let's say Bruce Nolan, plays for the Buffalo Bills. What position do you play? I was a defensive back. Okay, so Bruce Nolan, probably strong safety. You're a little stocky. You've, you, you, yeah, I could play you're strong not, You're not the longest guy. You know, you're not the rangiest defensive back that, you know. No, yeah, I'd say that's probably fair. Okay, okay. So Bruce Nolan is the strong safety, which, we, I mean, I don't even, I'm so surprised whenever I uh, was looking at Pro Bowl stuff that they actually still itemize the safety position as a strong which safety. Which is kind of dumb because almost they, nobody does that. Yeah, they put Jordan Poyer as a strong safety. And it's just like, I don't think that's quite fair. Now, would I, if I had to pick one between Micah Hyde and him, I would say that Jordan Poyer is often more the missile that's kind of playing run support. First man down in the box if you have to pick one of the two, but certainly not a traditional strong safety like Henry Jones was. Jamal Adams? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's not a box safety. Okay. So Bruce Nolan is a, is a strong safety place for the Buffalo Bills. You might have a cap hit, mm-hmm. but that is not the only income that you as an individual receive from the team in a calendar year. You are correct. Cap hit is not is not your salary. Cap hit is not your signing bonus. Cap hit is not your cash. Cap hit is a mathematical formula that is based on the status and nuances of your contract in that particular year and varies over the course of your contract. Now, I have a companion piece to this podcast dropping on Buffalo Rumblings, hopefully today, if you're listening to this on Wednesday, it'll be dropping on Wednesday. And this is a an audio version, if you will, of that. So if you want to go check that out, you can. But we're going to start with what what makes up a contract, and then we're going to go what makes up a cap hit. So if you will follow me, if you will. Contracts are made up of the following things. The first is salary. So salary is obviously the most understandable of them because a lot of people make a salary. You make an annual salary, and unlike... an a salary that is negotiated annually between you and your company, this is part of a contractual measure. Your salary is divided by 17, and each week you will receive 1 17th of your salary for that year if you're a player. That's how that works. Now, as a subnote to that, some of your salary could be guaranteed for cap, guaranteed for skill, guaranteed for injury, or fully guaranteed, which is guaranteed for all three of those factors. We are not, for the purposes of this podcast, we are not going to go into 
the different types of guarantees on that because that could be its own pod by itself. But that's the first component of a contract. The second is your signing bonus. Everyone's heard this signing bonus. It's a it's a check or an automatic deposit that goes into my bank account after I sign the contract. That's why everybody's so happy on the day they sign the contract. Yeah, the picture that they're there with their family and they got the little screen behind That's them that says seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars was just deposited <laughs> right. in your bank account. Money, 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 money. Exactly. If that happened to Bruce. Or me. <laughs> we would both be very happy that day. Very happy. I would love the Buffalo Bills on that day. <laughs> so that's your signing bonus. That is the second part of a contract. The next part of a contract is your options, right? These are built in. They're a team option, a player option, right? This is a, a decision point in the contract as to whether or not to activate any remaining portions of the contract, based on a choice that was determined at the signing of the contract, whether that's a player option or a team option. A player option would be the player is choosing to stay with the team, and thus they will continue to get paid next year, whatever the team... Or it could be a player option to opt out. Yeah, well, it's one right. or the other, right? It's one or the other. The, the, option, the player's option is to either I'm going to stay and fulfill my contract with the team or I'm going to opt out. The, play, the team's option is... They're either going to keep the player under the contract or they're going to let the player walk. Right. These are a lot more common in NBA contracts than they are in player contract and then NFL contracts, but they exist. Is the most common option characteristic in an NFL contract the fifth year option of a draftee? Yes. Hands down. Because thirty two people get it every year. So it's very common. <laughs> and it's it's basically all first round draft picks. Is yes. that correct? And it's a fifth basically you every rookie gets by default, a rookie deal, mm -hmm. right, that is four years long. Yep. And all of the first-round draft picks, the team has a fifth-year team option. Correct. And the player cannot. The player has no control. That is correct. Okay. So that's the next part of a contract. The final part of a contract is incentives. Incentives then can be subcategorized as likely to be earned or not likely to be earned. Now we get real subjective with this. But... Likely to be earned incentives, I'll, I'll, I'll make it as quick and dirty as I can. Giggity. Likely to be earned incentives are things that you did the previous year. So, for example, if you have an incentive in your contract to rush for 1,000 yards, and last year you rushed for 1,000 yards, that's considered now a likely to be earned incentive, and it counts toward the cap. Not likely to be earned incentives do not count toward the cap, and those are essentially things you did not do last year. So, again, very high level, but that's the way that incentives work. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. I mean, players can bet on themselves and teams can let the player bet on themselves and it doesn't count against the cap. Yeah, uh, winning the Super Bowl is a common one that not likely to be earned incentive, right? Winning the Super Bowl. But then, of course, if you win the Super Bowl and you have a winning the Super Bowl you know, incentive your next year, that now becomes a likely to be earned. And it all counts and against And now it hits cap space. Huh, interesting. Okay. So, those are the portions of a contract. Those are not the portions of a cap hit. So those are the four things when you're looking through a contract. You're looking through this, this, the salary, years, and the salary, right? The signing bonus, the options, and the incentive. However, that doesn't matter as much as the cap hit does. The cap hit matters for the purposes of the salary cap, which is what this conversation is about. This conversation is about the salary cap. It's about the decision-making process the team has to go through. So cap hit is the next reasonable thing to discuss. What is it that makes up 
a cap hit. A cap hit is your salary for that contract for that year, plus that year's proration of your signing bonus, plus roster bonuses and workout bonuses, which should be likely to be earned, right? Those things make up your cap hit. So your salary, obvious, whatever your salary was. Very important to note at this point that if you have a four-year, $40 million contract, your salary each year is not going to be $10 million. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. That's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. So it's important to understand that four years, 40 million does not mean 10, 10, 10, 10. Very, very, very rarely is that the case. The the parties come to the agreement together about yes. what how those get allocated? Yeah. So before the contract is signed, you see the outlines and it's going to be, you know, 8, 12, 12, 8 for whatever it is for the four years of the deal. So that year, whatever year we're talking about, let's say we're talking about the first year of the deal, right? Eight million, that's the salary for the purposes of your cap hit. The second thing I said was this year's proration of your signing bonus. If you sign a signing bonus, for the purposes of this discussion, we're going to assume that this player signed a four-year, $40 million contract with a $12 million signing bonus, okay? Just to make the math nice and easy. Now, the $12 million signing bonus does not hit the cap all 12 year one even though the cash was paid out that year that's not how it works the way it works is that that 12 million dollars is spread out over the entirety of the contract so this is prorated equally equally yes so the salary may not be but the signing bonus absolutely is but the signing bonus is simple math with the caveat if you only have five years then it's prorated over however many years they are five years or less if you sign a six or a seven-year contract, the signing bonus is still prorated over five years. Okay, so five years is the max. Five years is as long as it can be prorated over. So in this case, four-year, $40 million, signed $12 million signing bonus. Each year is going to have a $3 million hit there's on a, the cap for the signing bonus. There's an obvious question here, which is, I'm sure we're going to get to it, but maybe it's worth a quick answer. If we sign Bruce to this contract, mm -hmm. four years, $40 million, and you have a $12 million signing bonus, that's $3 million that are going to hit the cap over the next four years. Yep. What happens if we part ways after two years? We accelerate and we get dead cap. We're going to talk about it. Okay. We're going to talk about it. Okay. So the last part of your cap hit is the roster bonuses and the workout bonuses. And the reason that is is because they're, they're, they're always in there. Likely to be earned incentives. Right. Now, there's, there's some nuance that goes along with roster and workout and likely to be earned. We're not going to go there, okay? For the purposes of this discussion... They're treated the same. We're going to say salary, signing bonus proration, workout bonuses, roster bonuses equals cap hit. There's a lot of... we could, I could do an entire pod on just roster, workout, likely to be earned. We're not going to go there. But for the purposes of the discussion, to get you off the ground, salary, this year's portion of the proration of the signing bonus and roster bonus and workout bonuses equal your cap hits. So can you do anything with the salary that you want? Like if it's a four year, 40 million, could you do 30 million the first year yep. and three and a third, three and a third, three and a third? You absolutely could. Okay. There's nothing stopping you as far as I know of doing that. I don't know why you would, but you could. Well, it's, right? it's, it's, you know, one of the things that Brandon Bean has been lauded for is 
by get, putting deals on the books that the Bills can get out of after one or two years. And we're going to talk about the method by which he does that. And I guess we'll do it right now. We'll do it right now. So, one can of the I, ways to get yourself... Go ahead. Can I guess how he does it? Oh, you can guess if you'd like. I'm, sure. I'm guessing... I mean, it's part of it that he is... Four year, forty million. That he is doing the lion's share of the salary, quote unquote, early on the on the contract, and then minimizing it on the back end. No, that's All right. not how he's doing it. Okay, well, that's what I was. So guessing. I'll, t- I'll, I'll tell you how he's doing it. So how he's doing it is he's avoiding Doug Whaley's mistakes. So one of the quickest ways to get yourself into salary cap problems is to give someone a gigantic signing bonus, right, and then cut them. Because then that accelerates the remaining cap hit into this year, and you end up with what's called dead cap. So I mentioned earlier that your salaries can be guaranteed, right? The quickest way to run out of money is to cut or trade someone, have the signing bonuses that were previously going to be prorated into the future, accelerate into right now, and still owe them guaranteed money. The worst thing you could possibly do. Let me tell you about a guy named Doug Whaley. Mistakes were made. Cordy Glenn and Marcel Darius both had fairly reasonable signing bonuses that we were two years into or one year into or, you know, half a year. You know, not we were not far. If you want to use all the Doug Whaley contracts, right? The most two most notables are being Cordy Glenn and Marcel Darius. We're two years into these contracts. And. They signed, you know, five, six-year deals, and we got rid of them, and we got a lot of dead cap, a lot of dead cap. A serious mistake was made. And that's what happens. The way that Brandon Bean is avoiding this is by giving smaller signing bonuses and then giving larger roster bonuses to accommodate for that. Cole Beasley's contract and Tyler Croft's contract are two examples of those deals where Cole Beasley signed a four-year deal. It's only got a $6 million signing bonus. $6 million spread out over four years is not a lot. But he had a first-year roster bonus that was almost $3 million. So, hey, we're not going to give it to you like right now, but you're going to get it if you're on the team the fifth year of the day of the league year, which is tomorrow. It's one of those discussions. We're going to move the money into a roster bonus, which still gives me, we're absorbing that cap hit now. We're choosing to absorb the cap hit now. We're not giving more salary now, but we're choosing to absorb that as part of the first year payout. In response to this, we're going to make your first year salary lower. So your first year salary might be lower but you're going to get a signing bonus and you're going to get a fat roster bonus. I guess I, to me, it seems like it's half a dozen in one hand and six in another because, and I'm talking about from the team's perspective, which I, I, which means I think I'm missing something that's advantageous. I'm going to make up numbers. Okay. Well, I'll try to use Cole Beasley's numbers. So he has a $6 million signing bonus, which is going to be spread out over four years. So it's, it's 1 million and change every year. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's no big deal, right? That's, that's not a big deal. He's got a $3 million roster bonus, Uh which if you put that into his signing bonus, that would bump up the dead cap you would be carrying if you had to get rid of him down the line. Correct. Because it would be prorated over. Correct. But if if you're giving him the roster bonus in lieu of his salary, what does that matter 
because they both hit the cap this year anyways. Correct. So what you're doing is you're allowing him to have salary later, which is good, but it's not guaranteed. So if he signs a you know four-year, I think it's four-year 29 mil was Cole Beasley's. I'm literally going from memory. I don't have this written down. So I think it's four-year 29 million, right? So what we can do is we can give him a larger salary later that we can still get out of. So everybody wins. Because the only thing that is a cap hit is, is the accelerated the, signing bonus. Is the prorated signing bonus. Which wouldn't be much. So he still gets his money. His agent still gets the salary number that they want to get for reporting purposes, right? We, he still gets a fat bonus because he gets a roster bonus. So he's still getting a fat bonus, right? Equivalent to $9 million plus his salary in the first year. So that's good. If I say I'm going to give you $29 million over the next four years, but over 10 of it's going to come right now in the first year, you're like, okay, that's way over a quarter of the money is coming in the first year of the, the deal. That's good. So I get my money up front, which I really like. We can retain roster flexibility, which is good. The next logical question is, why doesn't all why don't all the teams do it this way? The answer is, I don't know. I went looking. There, there's got to be a reason out there for people to do fat, unbelievable signing bonuses in lieu of roster bonuses. And the only thing I can say is that agents push for that because it's guaranteed money right now in the pocket. They don't care about your cap. That's the only reason I can think of because I can't think of another reason why you wouldn't go, okay, let's just carve off five or six million of the signing bonus and make it a roster bonus that's essentially guaranteed, let's be honest. Roster bonuses are if you're on the roster the first year. Now, you can be a roster bonus year two and a roster bonus year three, right? That's fine. But what we're talking about is using a roster bonus in lieu of a larger signing bonus. And I don't know why you wouldn't do it unless the agent forced your hand. Are roster bonuses dead cap? No. Okay. So, I mean, if you are basically saying... Don't have an unflattering social media viral video come out that makes me have to cut you. Right. And you'll get this money. And you're going to get this money. You literally just have to be on the team. And as long as you're willing to play that game with me, then the team gets to have tons more flexibility because none of the ability, not, they're not forced to be unable to move on from you. Roster bonuses year three, they might not like. Because now you're cutting someone when their guaranteed money is typically gone. Typically, you don't have any guaranteed money left in year three, right? So if I'm an agent and you, as a team, propose to me a roster bonus year three, eh, so guaranteed because money, that gives you more incentive to get out from the contract. So, so you don't have to pay me that money. So guaranteed money is always a dead cap or uh, is always a... Yeah, if you cut it, someone and there's guaranteed money left on the deal and it's it's fully guaranteed, it's fully guaranteed. You're still screwed. Okay, okay. So let's say this Cole Beasley, four years, $29 million. If for some reason or somehow he had $5 million guaranteed in years three and four, then the bills, that's not – I mean, you don't really want that because if something has changed and you want to move on, now you have $10 million of dead cap. And that's why it never happens. No one has guaranteed money in year four of their deal. Nobody. That's why when you hear things rec reported as certain years, certain money, just wait for a minute because most of the time it's two years and let's see. One of the great things that I really want people to know coming out of this discussion is the vast majority of NFL contracts are 
two years and we'll see. Or three years and we'll see. If it's like a Kirk Cousins contract, the vast majority, regardless of what's reported, most of the time it's eh, two years and let's see. And if it's three years and let's see, right, and you cut up year two, you're in trouble. Let's take our first break and we will come back and we will talk about how teams can quote unquote roll cap from year to year and how there are ways to get out of some of the guaranteed money that we just talked about teams being handcuffed to. We will be right back. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Nick and Nolan Show. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nick Matt. That is... Bruce Nolan. Strong Safety. What number did you wear? 23. All right. Strong Safety number 23. It's a Micah Hyde's number, right? It is a Micah Hyde's number. Yeah, you're going to have to pick another one, or you're going to have to buy it from him. Okay. I think he beat me out in a training cap battle. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you might be uh, You might be th- this year's uh, Dean Marlowe. Dean Marlowe. <laughs> Yeah, you might be this year. You could be. You could be the Bills. Uh, Dean Marlowe. You're gonna lose. Bruce in camp. Nolan was right there. <laughs> yeah, right. Boy, Dean Marlowe was right there. That's funny. Okay, so talk to me about how teams can void guaranteed money. So this is a big deal because of the Antonio Brown thing. So the way that the contracts are written is that every single NFL contract has guarantee void language in there. And what it says is that guaranteed money is mostly guaranteed. It's guaranteed unless you go off the deep end. It's guaranteed unless you fail to report. It's guaranteed unless you do something that will harm our investment as a team in you. Give you a great example. There are specific legal terms written into an NFL contract that say, if you go skydiving, we could void your guarantee. You know, do something reckless. Because we invested in your ability to play football. If you go skydiving, or if you motorcycle race, or if you're drag racing, right? There's, there's a discussion as to whether or not we could void your guarantees based on the contractual language. 
Now, the truth is, if they do those things and they don't get hurt, NFL teams probably don't care. If they do those things and they get hurt... Kellen Winslow Jr. on a motorcycle. Wasn't that a big deal a while back? That was a big deal. There was some discussion about it with the Roethlisberger thing. And Antonio Brown, of course, is the big thing because he failed failed to report. Yeah, Ray Rice. Mm -hmm. Dree Archer stood the bills up a couple years back. Yep. So these are the cases in which case you can void your guarantees. Now, Dree Archer didn't have any guarantees in his contract. So, you know, no Dree Archer. So... But these things matter, especially from Antonio Brown's standpoint, because he just signed the new deal with the Raiders to keep him happy when he got traded. And then he went and did this. And then he threw a big stink about his, anything. his guarantees in anything, everything. He threw a big stink about everything. So just, just put, he threw a big stink about, and then just say anything you want to after that, and it's probably true. But he threw a big stink about them stealing his money. Well, you you just you didn't read the contract, so I mean I, I I'm sitting here with my hands against against my face going I don't know what to tell you man my 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 level of pity is not high for people who don't read the contracts that they sign so it's it's standard language in literally every contract even the ones that don't have guarantees specifically say those things so that's how you can void guarantees now. If the player's representation wants to fight you on that, it'll go to an independent arbiter, and that arbiter will rule on whether or not that team is within its rights to void your guarantees. So, that's how you void guarantees. You second thing you want to talk about yeah. was rolling over cap space. Yes, please. Okay, so, there is a salary floor in the NFL in addition to being a salary cap. A lot of people don't know that. There's a salary floor. It's 89% of the cap. So, you have to spend some money. As you can imagine, the NFLPA is trying to avoid situations, and they rightfully should. They're saying, listen, we understand the cap is there for competitive balance. Okay? Here's what we don't want. We don't want one team or four teams to just say, screw it. We can save hundreds of millions of dollars if we just don't spend any money on players. I refuse to draft any players. I'm going to pass on all my draft picks. I'm going to sign a bunch of undrafted free agents because I have loyal fans, and if they don't stop coming to my games, I'll just threaten to leave. I'll hold the city hostage and the team hostage. You can probably tell how I feel about NFL owners doing that. But they're trying to avoid that happening. You have to spend money. There's a salary floor. The only reason I can think of why you would not roll over unused cap space into the next year is if you were worried you weren't going to hit the salary floor. That's the only reason I can think of why you wouldn't roll over unused cap space. Because having cap space is always better than not having cap space from a flexibility roster standpoint. So the only reason I can think of why you wouldn't roll it over is that. Now, I'm sure there's probably something out there I have not thought of. You may find this hard to believe, but I am not the smartest person in the, every room that I go into. And there may be a reason out there I, I can't think of as to why you wouldn't why you wouldn't want to roll over cap space. But pretty much everybody does it all the time. The only reason I can think of strategically why you wouldn't do it is if you want to have less cap space so that you can meet salary floor demands the following year. So that's rolling over cap space. Teams used to do that anyway. They used to, just a side note, they used to put in um, like phony bonuses at the end of contracts, like just 
phony money in order to essentially roll over cap space. It was a big mess. It's not a thing anymore, but that's just a side note. Is there a limit on how much teams can roll over? Not that I know of. I haven't seen it if there is. What is the cap like 100% number as of right now? The NFL said that the salary cap for 2020 is $201.2 million. And 89% of that is, uh, gosh, what is it? It's going to be $178 million. Mm -hmm. So if a team has a salary cap hit that's only 160, that extra $11 million is just going to go to the league's coffers. They're just going to take it from you. The league is just going to keep it. and It's going to go to the players. Oh, the players are going to take it. It's going to go to the players, yeah. Because they're the ones who are getting penalized by you not spending the money. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Cool. So the limit, I mean, that teams have between maxing out the salary cap or not is only 20-some million dollars. I mean, that's one That's one defensive end. That's a top-end defensive end. You know what I mean? That's not as much of a threshold or as much of a, of a buffer as I kind of expected between what you have to spend and what you can spend. Very important to note this. The 89% floor is not cap space, it's cash spending. Very, very important. The salary cap is about cap hits. The salary floor is about cash. Not the same thing. So if I give somebody a fat signing bonus, that's going to be one fifth if it's a five-year contract of the cap hit but a hundred percent of that signing bonus counts toward the salary floor for that year for that year ah okay i see this is a very important distinction to make the salary floor is about cash moolah the salary cap is about cap hits gotcha okay they're measuring two different things so is there a minimum cap hit that a team has to have, or there's just a minimum spending? Minimum that, cash spending, that's it. Gotcha, gotcha, okay. That's how you end up with the Colts with $100 million in cap space. If that was the case, the Bills couldn't have $90 million in cap space. Right, that's what I guess Because there's not $90 million to play with. That's that's exactly— Well, I'm glad you brought it up then. That's exactly the, the kind of pretzel my mind was twisting itself into. Okay. How does someone end up with $90 million in cap space if the gap between the floor and the ceiling is only $22, $22 million. Million. yeah. The answer is cash. Yeah, nice. Okay. Which might answer one of our earlier questions, now that I think about it. One of our earlier questions was, why in the heck would you give a big signing bonus if you could give a roster bonus? Because you have to hit $180 got to hit $180 million. Let's give him a fat signing bonus. Eat up a bunch of money. Yeah, maybe. Okay. So. There you go. There's always motivations. Okay. What about... The different kinds of contracts that players can find themselves in. And what I'm talking about is like, you know, there's an exclusive rights free agent. There's a restricted rights free agent. There's the franchise tag contract. There is the, what's the other one? Transition Transition tag contract. And then there's what, you know, I think most contracts are, which is at the end of it, you're you're an unrestricted free agent. All right, let's start with exclusive rights free agents. Exclusive rights free agents are two years or less in the league. The of, player is two years or less. The player. Okay. And what that, when I mean two years or less, I mean two years or less of accrued seasons. 
an accrued season is if you're on a roster for six games. That six? Counts. Only six, okay. Mm-hmm. That's why when you see people who want to hold out, they always have to show up week 10. It's because they need to get six games in to get an accrued season, or else they have to start the whole process over again next year. That's the reason why. So you get six games, that's an accrued season. If you have two or less of those, you're an exclusive rights free agent. You don't run into that a lot because rookies don't sign two-year contracts. You run into this a lot with street free agents. That's when you run into this a lot. Yeah, a lot of it seems like a lot of undrafted free agents. Yeah, so street free agents are exclusive rights because sometimes they'll sign one or two-year deals and things like that. So an exclusive rights free agent is – they shouldn't even call it free – Free agent should not, exclusive rights free agent is an oxymoron because you're not free at all. If that team offers you a, 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 a tender for that, you have two options, sign the tender or sit out a year and go into restricted free agency. So you're basically stuck. That's two year deal. If you get to three years of accrued seasons, you are now a restricted free agent and now you could be tendered. So there's three tenders, right? The when you're an exclusive rights free agent, it's just a ridiculously low league minimum. Or league whatever. minimum, you know, the league minimum changes per based year. on how many how many years you have accrued. Okay, so if you have ten years, like of Fra- accrued salary, your minimum is one point three million. Like, like Cr- Frank Gore's minimum is way more than Devin Singletary's minimum. Absolutely, just because Frank Gore has been playing more than six games per season for so long. Correct. So this is also why this is also why Josh Gordon. Like, was under the Browns' control forever. Yep. Because he never was gaining six games of, of yep. experience per season. Yep. That's exactly right. So, restricted free agents. You can offer them three tenders. You can offer them a first-round tender, which is $4.149 million. You can offer them a second-round tender, which is $2.914 million. All of these are one-year deals. When I say tender, you're offering them a one-year contract that they can choose to sign or sit out a year. Again, you're not really free. Interesting little bit of vocabulary we just learned. So in NFL world, a tender is essentially a one-year deal. Yep. Okay, interesting. The third tender you can offer them as a team is an original round tender, which is worth $1.907 million. Why does this draft pick even think it even matter? Because the the part that they hide in here, oh, you're still a free agent. You know you're not really a free agent. You can negotiate with other teams if you're a restricted free agent. but And those teams can sign you to an offer sheet. Think Charles Clay. They can sign you to an offer sheet. Think Takeo Spikes. And if the team declines not to match, they have a right of first refusal on that offer. Which team? The team that you currently play for. The team that you for. currently play for has a right of first refusal on any offer you get on the quote-unquote free agent market which is not really free. You sit on a throne of lies. But if that team decides to match your offer, then you get to go, you get to stay with that team. That That's your that's your contract now, right? Like, great, good for you. If the team that you're currently on decides not to match, then the team who is acquiring you has to compensate the original team, your previous team, with a draft pick that corresponds to the tender they put on you a first round, a second round, or an original round. This is one of the reasons why having a undrafted free agent who then ends up being good is kind of dangerous because 
you can't really put a, an original round tender on them because there is no original round. So you have to decide whether or not you want to put an original round tender on them and risk losing them for essentially nothing to another team. Or another team poison pilling your contract, which is a whole different Steve Hutchinson. That's a whole different thing. We could do it again. That's why Charles Clay. We, we put a poison pill in Charles Clay contract, didn't we? Well, we 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 structured the contract in such a way that it'd be very very difficult for Miami to match it given their contract status, their cap space. So, did however, we... it also put us in a ridiculously bad position. Yeah. So, Doug Whaley. Yeah, Doug, <laughs> we Doug Whaley. Again, all of these things that we're talking about, we could do an entire pod on that. I could do an entire pod on transition tags and poison pills and all this nonsense, which poison pills, were they, they tried to get rid of them, but now you can't really do a poison pill anymore. Because the idea the, behind a poison pill, this is not just in football. This is in all business negotiations. The idea of a poison pill is that you are forcing the the person who you are competing against for whatever it is you're competing for, that if they beat you out, they have to absorb something that is so egregious that they will let go of whatever it is you're trying to steal from them. Right. You're putting a poison pill in the pie and then saying, do you want to eat it? Right. That's the point. So it, really quick, funny aside, poison pills were, were kind of written out of, of the NFL and the CBA, and people don't really do them. But the, the most famous poison pill ever was Steve Hutchinson, okay? So Steve Hutchinson was a Seattle player, okay? Left, he was a guard for Seattle. And he got signed as a restricted free agent with the Minnesota Vikings. And the Minnesota Vikings put a poison pill in the contract that Steve Hutchinson had to be the highest paid offensive lineman on his own team. Well, the... The Seahawks had Walter Jones. <laughs> it was like the dirtiest thing that any team has ever done to another team. It was so bad. It was they just they did them absolutely rottenly dirty. Just go look up the story on that that contract. It's an absolute. It's it's a wonderful read. If you're into contracts and numbers, as you could probably imagine that I am, it is absolutely it's clever. It's it's riotous. But not if you're a Seahawks fan. It's, sure, not, it's, not, sure. it's not riotous as if you're if you're a Seahawks fan. Right. So did we have to give the Dolphins a draft pick for Charles Clay? No, he was an undrafted free agent. And they did an original round tender mm-hmm. on him. Got it. If he was valuable to them, they would have just put a first or second round tender on him, right? Would well, have been more money. Yeah, but did, they didn't value him at a second round level. Interesting. Neither did the Bills, probably. I mean, forcing forcing us to give you a second round pick to steal your tight end and pay him you know that's a hefty price yes they just the dolphins just got cheap on him well we did offer him i think he was he was a top five paid tight end when he signed the deal right we paid him like a top five tight end right exactly well and that's that our poison pill was we paid him so much that they couldn't absorb it yeah (laughs) (laughs) i got you now i'm gonna i'm gonna give this guy so much money that i'm gonna be in cap hell that'll that'll show you but for for clarification the poison pill on the hutchinson deal was that hutchinson's contract would become fully guaranteed at any point he was not the highest paid offensive lineman on the team which means if Seattle had matched it, Hutchinson's contract would have become fully guaranteed in its entirety. Because he would have immediately not been the highest paid. Correct. Because Walter Jones was getting paid more because he was a tackle. Exactly. Got it. Okay. So that's restricted free agency. 
It's just an absolute mess. Unrestricted free agency is four years accrued seasons or more. This is why every draft pick at the end of their rookie deal, unless you're a first-round pick and you get a uh, a first-round fifth-year option on you, you go into unrestricted free agency unless you get tagged. So if you get tagged, right, then the tag is a tender. That's very important. Remember we said tender is a one-year deal. deal. Exactly. Pop quiz. Pop quiz. What's a tender? It's a one-year deal, right? So a tag is that. A tag is built into the CBA to help teams retain players at the cost of significant money guaranteed. So I'll tell you what I mean by that. So a franchise tag is guaranteed. A transition tag is guaranteed. Whatever the tag is, fully guaranteed, period. So that's the upside of getting tagged is I'm getting guaranteed money. The downside of getting tagged is I can't negotiate with other teams. Technically, I can. There's an exclusive and a non-exclusive franchise tag. And if they give you a non-exclusive franchise tag, you're allowed to negotiate with other teams. But it's essentially like they put a first-round tender on you. So they could do it. It's hard for a team to swallow not only paying a player premier money, but also give, giving a first giving round up pick. a first round pick for right. them as well right. is pretty insane. And it's such a weird thing because if you value a player so much that you could not imagine letting them go, why did you put the non-exclusive tag on them and even allow them to do it, right? So it's this weird window where it's just not used very often because it's the weird binary. Either we want to keep you and we tag you to make sure it gets done. Not non-exclusive, sorry, exclusive franchise tag. You can't negotiate with anybody else. We're tagging you. You can either sign it you can negotiate a long-term deal with us or you can sit out the year. Those are your options, right? Or we don't think you're the guy. We're going to let you walk. There's this weird middle ground purgatory you have to be to get slapped with a transition tag or a non-exclusive franchise tag. So you just don't see them very often because there's this weird middle ground that has to occur where you're you're good, but you're not... We're not scared of losing you. But we want to be compensated we if we be lose. Co- it's just this weird middle ground. You just don't see them very often anymore. We want to be compensated more than a compensatory pick. Correct. Okay. So it just doesn't occur very often. The franchise tag used to have two first-round picks associated with it. Wow. But that's not part of That's not a thing anymore. But that's tags. That's the way tags work. And that, that puts the player in a really bad spot because now I can either sign this tag and agree to play under this one year fully guaranteed money that is an average of the Tough. highest paid players at my position. So it's a lot of money. It's a good it's a good tender. Yes. But, but it it's is very no- rarely as good as that player was going to get on the open market. Most players do not like being tagged. Because they were probably going to set the market. Correct. They were now they're an average of what the top five? Yeah. Average of the top five for one year. Whereas there's a lot of there's a that's a range that's a significant range yep. of the top five. So and then there's debates over positions. If you have a pass rusher who's an edge slash linebacker, whether you tag them as a pass rusher as a defensive end or whether you tag them as a linebacker matters. Now we get to all these arbiter disputes. Yeah. So when you get tagged. The player's benefit is, okay, this decent contract is fully guaranteed. The downside is I may have set the market. So not only was I going to be not the average of the top five, I was going to be by myself number one. And number two, I was going to be 
long term, I was going to have some kind of long term stability. Mm-hmm. There was going to be guaranteed money in year two. There might have been because of my cachet. There might have been guaranteed money in year three. Right. And the player loses out on all of that when they are franchise tagged. This is why there's always discussions when the CBA is renegotiated about getting rid of the franchise tag. The reason I don't think it will happen is because it doesn't affect enough players for people to get upset about it. So I really like CBA. You probably can guess this. I really like CBA negotiations. I find them fascinating, right? Because it's, it's somehow related to something I do every day. And it is, it's contractual in nature. It's fascinating. I am notoriously pro player in this scenario, right? I I think salary cap's a great thing, right? I don't think fully guaranteed contracts are a good idea, but as a general rule, I don't think we should go to 17 games. It's just my personal philosophy on it. But a couple of these things are interesting to note because they don't affect enough players to get the plurality of players to push the union leadership to get it fixed. I mean, how many people get tagged every year? Eight. Yeah. If the that, union doesn't represent eight players. The union represents all the players. Yeah. And so if only if only 15 players are upset about it, it's not going to get fixed. So I, I would not anticipate franchise tags going away. So what's the transition? It's the same thing, only a lower mo- number. So it's now it's top 10 of your thing, and so that number is lower. Is it still a first-round pick? Transition tag is the top 10. It is guaranteed as of the 2007 CBA, and you can still negotiate with other people if you don't sign it. So if the player signs an offer sheet, then the original team gets no compensation if they don't choose to match. Okay, no compensation. No compensation at all. Okay, interesting. Can we real quick just go over compensatory picks? Because if you... Basically, the the big picture idea, this is 101, so mm-hmm. we won't deal with it. The big picture understanding is that because if players leave and they go elsewhere, then you don't get – you get compensated by the league. By the league. Not by the other team. Correct. In draft picks. Yes. And this is based on a formula that determines net free agents lost versus net free agents gained. So last year, the Bills signed a ton of free agents. Zero compensatory picks. This year, if we don't sign a ton but we lose a few, we may get some compensatory picks. Yeah, if Shaq Lawson left, got a reasonable contract, and Jordan Phillips left, got a reasonable contract, Quentin Spain leaves, get a reasonable contract, and we sign two street free agents for no money. Sure. Yeah. We get some. There are a couple really good follows on Twitter that actually have the formula down to, like, a T, and they can correctly tell you within a 99% surety, here's who's going to get what based on their transactions. Okay. So find those people, make sure you follow them. And it doesn't really affect the salary cap aside from sometimes people talk about the reason they're not going to play, a, they're not going to pay a player is because not only will they save the money, but they will be compensated in the ability to acquire other talent. Correct. Okay. So... One of the last things, I think, is restructuring contracts. Yeah, so we need to talk about this because there is a narrative about restructuring that is not helpful to the conversation, and we need to make sure we debunk it. A restructure is not a player doing the team a service. Sometimes you will see 
uh, announcement from a team that so-and-so has restructured their deal, and there'll be comments below it. Like, oh, man, yay, you know, such a team guy agreeing to restructure his contract. Stop. No. A restructure is not a pay cut. Now, they could have taken a pay cut. That happens occasionally. Very, very rarely. So if I find myself in cap problems because I gave somebody a gigantic signing bonus and then I cut them two years later and I accelerated that into dead cap and maybe I still owed them guaranteed money because I was an idiot and I put guaranteed money into the third year of their deal and I cut them after two years. I can't imagine anybody ever doing this. I don't know anyone who's done that. Mistakes were made here. Let's assume for a second that that was the case. And now I'm up against the cap. It's so hard for me to imagine. I couldn't possibly. <laughs> I just can't it's so them. difficult. I just have to keep reminding myself the circumstances. So let's assume for a second you were to do that. <laughs> there is a discussion amongst some fans that the cap is a myth. That's, that's, a, that's a fairly common narrative amongst some football analysts. The cap is a myth. You can move money around endlessly, right? Um, and... It's not true because math math is a wonderful, joyous thing that I enjoy quite a bit. And so math has boundaries. Math has boundaries. So one of the ways that they say the cap is a myth is because you can restructure people until the cows come home. And that's true. You can restructure contracts tons and tons. What a simple restructure is, now there's lots of ways to restructure a contract, but typically when you say so-and-so restructure the contract, what you're talking about is what's called a simple restructure. A simple restructure is a conversion of a portion of a player's salary into a signing bonus or a roster bonus. Most of the time, it is a convert straight conversion of annual salary to a signing bonus. So you're basically taking a portion. Let me make sure I understand what we've talked about so far. Let's say a player has a, they have two years left on their deal and they have a $10 million salary. Okay. In each? In each year. year. Okay. So 10-10. 10-10. Got it. And the team is going to drop this year's salary to $5 million, and they're going to give you a $5 million signing bonus. Now, two and a half, you just lowered this year's cap by $2.5 million. Correct. The cap hit this year went from 10 to 7. To seven and a half. Seven and a half, yeah. But what happened to next year's it cap went, hit? It went up 2.5. Yep. You just moved it later. You didn't. You just moved it. So restructuring is based on the concept that you're kicking the can down the road. Eventually, if you kick the can, eventually next year is going to look real bad if you just do that over and over and over again. The reason why teams are willing to do it is because the salary cap goes up every year. They are praying to the salary cap gods to save them. That is what GMs do. They get on their knees and pray to the salary cap gods that the sins of their fathers will not come back to bite them. And that's what restructuring contracts are. You're taking money. You're pushing it out into the future. You're not taking the money. You're taking the cap hit and pushing it out in the future. The, the player's like, okay. You're going to give me this money right now instead of making me play 17 weeks? Correct. I Why take, wouldn't they do that? I will do that. The player is not doing the team a favor. The player's going, I'm sorry, you want to give me all 17 weeks of my salary right now in the bank account instead of making me get it every week for the next 17 weeks? You're going to get, yeah. You're going to make all of the checks I get 
for the 17 weeks, half as big, but you're going to give me all that money today. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I will I will agree to your terms. It's my money and I need it now. And what you've done is you haven't really moved any of the money around. If you'll notice, the cap hits are still the same in totality. You went from 10-10 to 7.5, 12.5. It's still 20. But you just push the cap hit back. If you have a team who does a lot of restructuring contracts, your GM is bad at math. That's the way this works. <laughs> All right. So, or, or you're restructuring one particularly large contract to free up a particularly large space to do something particularly aggressive. Right now. Right now. Yeah. If you see a window of opportunity, not every restructure is a dumb move. Sometimes you find yourself, oh, I'm in a situation where, listen, I didn't think this guy was going to be available on the free agent market, but this person just got cut, and I think he fits perfectly in what we're doing. I'm going to free up some money and go get him. I'm going to be opportunistic, and I'm going to do that. Not every restructure is ton. Now, if you're constantly restructuring contracts, mm, <laughs> <laughs> okay, right? And some contracts, when they're, the day they're signed, you go, I feel a restructure coming. So after every free agent contract, I'll go to the spot track and I'll be like, there's a restructure coming. I can, you smell that? It smells like a, rest, it smells like a restructure year three. That's funny. Because you, you look at the contract, you're like, well, that, well that, that really gets out of hand fast. Yeah. You're like anger man. And you're sitting there going, well, that escalated quickly. Yeah, right, right, right. So that's something that, that the fans need to know about restructuring. It's important that you know the narrative around that is very likely not the player doing the team a favor, and more likely, you should go, huh, why did we need to? That's the first question you should ask. If you, why if, did we need to restructure yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if you did it in order to go after something, you're like, okay, makes sense. Yeah. If you did it and then you didn't do anything that like proceed, that succeeded it, then you think, we might be doing dumb things. Right. <laughs> Did we do dumb things? Because you're praying that the the raising of the cap every year will bail you out of your bad decisions. And some bad decisions, it will. A lot of bad decisions, it won't. I'll give you a great example. Khalil Mack has a $42 million dead cap figure this year. It's essentially a no-trade clause. If the Bears wanted to get rid of Khalil Mack, I, I, just, I saw a couple people were like, oh, you know, the Bears are in cap trouble. Maybe we should trade for Khalil Mack. No. <laughs> the Bears the Bears are handcuffed to Khalil Mack. They cannot get rid of him. $42 million in dead cap. That's almost a quarter of the cap. Yes. One player if they get rid of Khalil Mack. So that's essentially a, a no-trade a no clause. So there are ways you can build things into a contract that make it basically impossible to get out of for a certain amount of time. Every single contract, remember what I said, what's the most important thing you take away from this podcast? Every contract is two years and let's see, or three years and let's see. The Tyler Croft, Croft contract, one year and let's see. The, we just signed Tyler Croft. Trent Murphy, two years and let's see. Two years and let's see. Starla Tulele, three years and let's see. 
Yeah, that's why people are kind of like, eh, I wish we had a little flex. That's right. why. That's literally why we have spent time on this podcast hemming and hawing about Starla Tula. I kind of handcuffs us. Like this Jordan Phillips thing. You know, in a in a certain situation, maybe they don't play the same position. We've had that conversation, but in a certain way, I could imagine. Maybe I want to prioritize that talent over Starla Tulele, but because it's a three-year and let's see, not a two-year and let's see, that's not really going to work. And that's the biggest thing to take away from this, is that because of the structure of contracts, everything you read is wrong. A hundred percent of what you read is wrong because it's reported by people who want you to think a certain thing. And why that, who, who do you think leaks the contracts before they get hit spot track? The agents. The agents. So... When you say, hey, it's a five-year, $50 million contract. Okay, how much money is guaranteed? When is it guaranteed? And when can I get out of it? These, this is the final point of the podcast. The three questions you should ask yourself after every signing are, how much money is guaranteed? When is it guaranteed? And when can I get out of it? That's what you want to know. That's, this is on the test. This is on the test. <laughs> okay. Because these are the things that determine whether something's a good contract or a bad contract. Because market value is going to take care of itself. As long as the market is free, market value will take care of itself. What is somebody worth, Nick? Whatever somebody's willing to pay them. This is, so that I do have one last question for you. And, and I did give you notice about this. So it's okay, not on the I'm, I'm cool. I'm cool. <laughs> yeah, you're. You don't like it when we when we go off when we do whenever the GPS has to recalculate. Not Bruce's favorite. I don't use GPSs. <laughs> I have an we, atlas. We don't have time for this. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking, cutting. I'm cutting all of this. No, you're not. No, no. People need to know. Nick. I turned away from my mic. Fine, I'll leave it in. No, fuck it. People need to know. Fuck it. We'll do it live. <laughs> we'll do it live. Fuck it. Do it live! I can, I'll write it and we'll do it live! <laughs> <laughs> I'm literally turning red. Okay. Okay. Now right. that I'm purple, what was it you wanted to ask me? So the market value will determine. So this is my question. And, and I, tech, I, I said I wanted to talk about this. So the big thing I think people wonder about sometimes whenever you're talking about these free agent signings is the thing that comes up is, Ooh, can I give that kind of money to a tight end? Can I give that kind of a money to a safety? Can I give that kind of money to a corner? And I think that we understand the, the game board that we're playing with. We don't understand a whole lot of the strategy. And I'm assuming the strategy probably can vary from drastically team, from team to team. Yes. I mean, like, for example, for a long time, the New England Patriots did not prioritize uh, defensive backs. Now they prioritize defensive backs with their money, like, as a top priority. So this, this, this can shift not only, you know, from team to team, but within a team over time and as the league changes and as the game changes. Are there any rules of thumb that you know, are just things that teams or fans or smart GMs or whoever should keep in mind that somebody has to, you know, I think a lot of it right now is like the Bills have to sign their own guys. We have to extend a lot of guys or we have to choose to let them walk. These can be difficult decisions. We may have to pay Josh Allen a pretty handsome sum because quarterbacks make a lot of money in a couple of years, right? These are all things that like you kind of have to have in the back of your mind because like 
like chess, you're thinking three moves ahead. Are there any rules of thumb for strategy that people maybe should uh, have in mind that it's uh, whenever you hear, whenever you see fans commenting on articles or on Twitter or whatever, calling into shows, they're not, they're not, they don't seem to have something. Um, they don't have, I don't have a certain understanding that they should have. No, there are no rules of thumbs. There's organizational preference. I'll give you, I'll give you a great one right now. It has been well established by this point in our listeners relationship with me. I do not want to pay running backs. Period. I'm not interested in signing Derrick Henry. I would have let Ezekiel Elliott walk. I do not want to sign running backs. I think it is a bad organizational philosophy to sign running backs to big money. If you want to sign, you know, TJ Yeldon to a two-year, you know, few million dollars here to, you know, make sure you plug up some holes. You will plug your nose and do it. Don't paint yourself as a person who liked the TJ Yeldon signing because I no. asked you about it no. at the moment and you I still don't said like it. You still said I get it. I don't want to give anybody I don't want to give running backs money okay go on sorry so that's an organizational philosophy in this case it's a personal philosophy now I, I Dave have Gettleman will pay him right Dave Gettleman will pay him and that's the same reason why I wouldn't draft him high it's the same thing it's a value of the position right Gettleman believes in drafting running backs high he did it two years in a row he did it with the Panthers with McCaffrey and then did it again with Barkley and the Giants so organizational philosophy is important more so than having rule of thumbs is being on the same page with the front office and the coaching staff. This is everything. The rule of thumb that you want is make sure your front office has the same vision for organizational roster building as your coaching staff. And allocating resources as such. Correct. Because if your front office is Dave Gettleman and your head coach is, let's say Mike Shanahan, Mike Shanahan did never, never, ever, ever. He traded Clinton Portis, just plugged in the next guy. Olandis Gary, Mike Anderson, doesn't matter, right? So if you have Dave Gettleman and your coach is Mike Shanahan, they're probably going to butt heads on this. Mike Mike Shanahan is like the the godfather of Bruce philosophy yes. on running backs. Mike Shanahan wears running backs don't matter t-shirts to bed. <laughs> I guarantee you. <laughs> the zone so, blocking scheme of Denver, man. That was great. Okay. So... More importantly than having a rule of thumb is having organizational coherence and organizational cohesiveness when it comes to that. Everyone has to know what the plan is, and they both have to be on the same page. So there's a couple philosophies. The first one is do running backs matter. That's one, right? If I was interviewing a coaching staff and a GM, I would ask them all these questions and make sure they're on the same page. If I'm an owner of a team, do running backs matter? Talk to me. And I'm not going to hire someone who pounds the table for high running backs and then pair them with a coach who says, no, that's stupid. Why would you do that? You're setting yourself up for he said, she said, well, he's not utilizing my players correctly. Adam Gase and Mike McCagnin, right? Here it is. So Le'Veon Bell is the is the, the pawn. That's, that's what happens when things like this happen. Mike McCagnin signs Le'Veon Bell and Adam Gase isn't interested. So that's the first thing. The second thing is coverage or pass rush. Ideally, both. Right? Yeah. But there are some organizations who specifically favor one over another. Sean McDermott co- values coverage. Sean McDermott is interesting. Well, he so he drafted Tredavious White because we know McDermott was calling the shots in 2017. But Gettleman, who is Bean's 
you know, we make fun of Gettleman, but then being who learned back to be Gettleman, we're like cool with him. So yeah, we're like we, we, we all, I think we all like in our minds we tell ourselves <clears throat> Bean's like Bean was sitting there like Jesus Christ, I won't do that when I'm. But yet Bean shows a lot of the same tendencies that Gettleman <laughs> and, shows. Sure, sure. Trade now we don't your know if, how he feels about running backs, Mel Matter, things like that. But yeah. Gettleman pulled the tag from Josh Norman. He couldn't sign Josh Norman, tagged him, and then pulled the tag from him and let him leave. So we don't really know. There's going to be some interesting theories about how well, he, how McDermott feels about coverage. Yeah, sure. I guess we don't know how McDermott feels. This is what I will say. The history will, sh- will show that McDermott typically doesn't have a premier pass rusher. Historically, Charles Johnson's the closest thing he had to him. And right? that's, I mean, but that's not Caroline really. Caroline had Julius Peppers, too. So... At the, I, very, I, at the very end. I guess, yeah. After he I, left I, the Bears and he came back. Yeah, I mean. He wasn't the same guy. Third stop, right? Yeah, he wasn't the same guy. But, he, he, you know, he was he was Carolina and he was Green Bay and he was Chicago and then he was Carolina. Yeah, I guess at the very, I mean. Actually, sure. I think he was, it was backwards there. It was Carolina, Chicago, Green Bay, Carolina again, I think. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter. But, we, yeah. I mean, to me. That's like, you know, some of these guys at the end. But Gettleman like, believes in the like trenches. A, like when uh, Dwight Freeney at the end. I yes. mean, like, is that a quote unquote? I mean, yeah. we I, can make an argument. We, we sure, sure. Okay, move, on, move on, move on, move on. But the point is that that's a distinction that has to be made. Do you have a significant leaning on coverage versus pass rush? Because New England does. The answer is coverage for New England. Right. They let pass rushers run. They they traded away Chandler Jones. Richard they Seymour. Let, they let Seymour walk. They traded away Seymour to the, the, the Raiders. They let Flowers walk. They, they have shown flat out that they will pay coverage people. They signed Gilmore to a fat free agent contract, and no one had any idea that was coming. Yeah. But they've clearly shown a preference for coverage over pass rush. Sure. Other franchises show pass rush over coverage. So there is all this to loop back to say there is no rule of thumb. There are things that I prefer and things that you prefer about organizational philosophy. And then that's going to tie into whether or not we should pay. Great example. Matt Milano. Should we pay him? I would argue that Sean McDermott has a linebacker centric defense. And as such, that means that Milano making 13 million is very reasonable. I would make that argument. Well, I think th- this is kind of this is sort of where you get to a point where not only do you have to determine what your team cares about, you have to know whether or not you agree or disagree, mm-hmm. so you can know whether or not you should be upset at the decision they make. Correct. And what you're upset about? Are you upset that they disagree with you, or are you upset that they made a bad move, even based on their own priorities? So this was a discussion we had when we drafted Cody Ford. We drafted Cody Ford. I gave uh, my snap reaction was I gave it a C and someone said, why? And I said, if they think he's a tackle, I disagree with the assessment. If they think he's a guard, I think he's redundant. And then the initial response, of course, is, oh, you're not a GM. Correct. I'm not a GM. That's right. GMs are paid money because they have a higher probability of being correct than I do. The reason why I'm not a GM is because I have a lower probability of being correct in my decision-making than a GM. That does not mean there will never be a case when I'm right and Brandon Bean is wrong. There's going to be... A, a <laughs> you're, drunk, just, you're just 
You're just carving it in stone. Right. Uh, Writing it in ink. Right. I'm right. so sorry. That's exactly Writing, Writing it in ink. Inside yeah. joke for Nick and Nolan people. So there's a drunk dude under the underpass in Cleveland who has a probability of being right when the GM of the Browns is wrong. That, there's a probability that's going to happen. The reason why you get paid to be a GM is because you have a higher probability or perceived higher probability of being right. So when people disagree with organizational decision-making, if that's the case and your argument is you're not a GM, it is the laziest and most asinine response impossible. And I probably won't even entertain it. If you want to talk about organizational philosophy and disagreements, we'll, we can, we'll talk about that. We're talking about it right now. But if your response is, you're not a GM, I got nothing for you. I, got, I just got nothing for you. Yeah. Block me. Block me. Do it. <laughs> yeah, that's just fine. Unfollow me, block me. That's fine. I'm okay with that. Yeah. I want to have a reasonable discussion on organizational philosophy, and that's what we're doing right now. So how does the priority of what a team values, pass rush versus coverage. Bud Dupree is on the market, right? Mm -hmm. The the, the Steelers, defensive end slash off-ball outside linebacker, primarily a pass rusher. He's always going upfield. He's not really playing traditional linebacker. But is he, you know, can he play defensive end on a 4-3, hand in the dirt, you know, down in, down out? People, some people don't know, right? right? And Spot Track, I had a conversation with Aaron Quinn about this briefly on Twitter. Spot Track has him valued between like 15 million and 19 million a year. And then Cold Front Report tweeted out that that was what he was expected to make. And I'm looking at like defensive ends and outside linebackers. That's like, that's premier money. Mm-hmm. Now, now, obviously the cap is up from when the guys who are the premier money makers were signed. Correct. So is there going to be some inflation? Yes. But that is a ridiculous amount of money. And so it's kind of like, so if a team really loves pass rushers, are they going to pay more than a team that doesn't for a player like Bud Dupree? Yes. Sure. The answer to that is yes. But there still has to be a reasonable number that is come to based on the market, right? Well, the market is subjective. That's important. So what Bud Dupree's market is, is relative to what you think he is. So I'll give you a great example. If you think he is a 3-4 outside linebacker, then his market is 3-4 outside linebackers. If you think he's a 4-3 defensive end, then his market is 4-3 defensive ends. So even a player's market is subjective relative to organizational viewership of that player. I will go on record as saying if Shaq leaves, and I don't think Shaq will leave, you just read the tea leaves on how Brandon Bean talked about him versus how he talked about Jordan Phillips. He said that Jordan Phillips had earned the right to test the market. He said that Shaq Lawson had done everything they asked and deserved to be paid, basically. Like, and he's and our, our, our representatives are going to reach out. Yeah, right. So I mean, like, if you read the tea leaves, like, there's a good chance Shaq is back. If Shaq walks, I love the idea of a reasonable, and you, you said this, a Trent Murphy-style deal for Bud Dupree and draft a defensive end. I love that combination. If he can be had for that, sure. I, I, I think, I think you and I need to have a separate discussion about Bud Dupree. I think we should do an entire pod on Bud Dupree. I will prep. You will prep. We will come in. We will pick separate debate sides and we'll go at it. My film work versus your film work. Let's do it. Yeah, that's 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 not a fair fight. <laughs> so I don't think that that's exactly where we go. But I... I I don't know. I find him. I find him to be an intriguing prospect, mostly because I think that 
because he's not a, a determined product with what he is, I, I A, like that versatility because McDermott does interesting things with guys who are versatile. And I think that a, a, a defense that Sean McDermott is handling might make more out of him than a defense that tries to make him just one thing, A. And B, because he is an undetermined product, I think that's going to drive his price down, not drive it up. So, anyways, that's it. That's all I wanted to say. <laughs> I don't want to have a whole pot on Dwight Dupree. Get I think my, we should. Get my ass kicked. I think we should. It, yeah, I think it would be awesome. Yeah. There we go. Okay. Well, thank you guys very much for joining us for this edition of the Nick and Nolan Show. I hope you found this informative. That was ultimately our goal, right, was to set a groundwork of understanding of how all of the moving parts that you hear about with free agency and players that could be had and potential guys who are going to join your team, guys who might be leaving your team, the circumstances which they find themselves in, and what kinds of things Brandon Bean and Dan Morgan and Brian Gain and Joe Shane and Lake Dawson and Jim Overdorf, who is one of the last remaining stalwarts of the previous ownership, let alone anything else. Those guys are juggling in order to keep the bills from going into cap hell, right? So we hope that this is helpful. We thank you for joining us. Let us know what you think of the pod. We would love to see some reviews. We haven't gotten any reviews in a while. Well, we haven't asked for any in a while. Well, they would be nice. We, would, we haven't seen any. It would, be, it would be great. If you like what we're doing and if you find it interesting in any way, please uh, leave us a review in the iTunes store. Bruce and I check every now and then, and we would love to, love to see somebody's thoughts uh, sometime soon. And without any further ado, we want to share our words of wisdom. You, these are words you live by, aren't they, Bruce? Always. Always. And Bruce's mantra, whenever he gets in that like cross-legged position, sitting on the floor with his hands up and his, his fingertips touching, his thumb and his pointer finger, and he's just in a total zen mode, these are the words that Bruce repeats to himself over and over. I do the cha-cha like a sissy girl. I like a do the cha-cha. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the PropG Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. 
Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a PropG Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.